0: Alright, and welcome everybody to a very special episode of the Talking Space Podcast. This is Talking Space episode 1007, and we are not going to date this one because this is timeless. This is the first episode we are recording after the successful launch of the Parker Solar Probe. And by we, I mean myself, Sawyer Rosenstein, and joining me as well is Gene McCulka. Welcome, Gene.
1: Oh boy, Sawyer, I'm ready to go ahead and with apologies to pink floyd we're gonna go ahead and set the controls for the heart of the sun tonight let's let's rock and roll here
0: at least he didn't say dark side of the moon (laughs) so it is just going to be the two gentlemen for these next few episodes and the reason being the two of us were at the launch of the parker solar probe which after a one-day delay successfully took off at 3 31 a.m eastern time on sunday august 12th 2018 And my goodness, what a launch it was. It was a launch of the Delta IV heavy rocket from Space Launch Complex 37 at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station in Florida. On board, again, as previously mentioned, the Parker Solar Probe, humankind's first ever mission to quote-unquote touch the sun. By that, it will be getting within about 4 million miles of the sun. So just for reference, 4 million miles is about 6.4 million kilometers away.
1: But it's the closest story that we've ever been to another star and this this mission is going to go ahead and help us really really understand a little bit more about about the solar atmosphere, about uh, the solar wind. Uh, it, I mean, it, it's probably the premier heliophysics uh mission Probably of our lifetime thus far. Just just to think to get that close to a star is, is just mind boggling to me. Uh, I mean, I remember when I first heard about this mission, it was back in, oh, good Lord, I think, I think it was um, back around the 2011 2012 timeframe, uh, and it was from uh, Dr. Catherine Quather's blog. And, and back then it was called Solar Probe Plus, say that 10 times fast. It was it was just an intriguing concept to begin with, and uh, just as an aside too, when we were down there, we're down at the uh, Johns Hopkins uh, Applied Physics Laboratory, uh, covering the New Horizons flyby, that spacecraft was under construction somewhere in that uh, in that campus uh, as we were doing that back in 2014. There's just still a lot of excitement about this mission, even a week later. And uh, hopefully we're gonna go ahead uh, in this episode and bring you along and give you some, an idea of the sights and sounds of, of what we saw and what we collected and, and uh, what was said. We talked to some really, really intriguing folks. We talked to some, some of the uh, the program scientists and uh, we've got a great lineup of, uh, of interviews standing waiting in the wings, wings for for us. But, uh, Sawyer, why don't we do something really, really special? I know everybody is always itching to hear some good launch audio, so why don't we first talk about those two nights themselves?
0: Sure. So, uh, the original launch was scheduled for 3.33 a.m. Eastern Time on Saturday, August 11th, this after multiple delays due to rocket processing issues and things like that. So it's, we were out there the day before, which we'll talk about a little later. We go, we're running on pretty much no sleep because (laughs) the way that timing worked, I don't think we got any sleep between L minus one and L minus zero. No, we didn't.
1: I know I didn't.
0: (laughs) And honestly, L minus one and zero blended together at that point of the original L minus zero, we should point out. So we're out there at the NASA causeway, uh, Gene and I, and we are waiting for this launch attempt, uh... It was a 65-minute window, although by the time we got to the press site, uh, due to some delays with the rollback, they had already eaten up 20 minutes of that. So the new launch time was 3.51, and that left 45 minutes left in the launch window in case something went wrong, which it did. So we started off in the go-no-go no, go poll with—and I'll never forget, there was an awkward pause at one point. We're like, oh, no, they're going to say no-go. Call systems. Airborne. Go. Ground. go and he says go and we're like oh yay the next person (laughs) operation support no go pending the resolution of the anomaly just briefed on six without hesitation yeah
1: i believe that was a that was due to a, a communication issue between the launch facility and the launch control center and that was something they were trying to psych out but uh and they eventually did. They eventually did get that that particular uh, that particular piece psyched out and uh, and ready to go. But then, as we got closer and closer to T zero, something went ahead and bit us as well. Correct, Sawyer?
0: Yeah. So they finally gave us the go. We were aiming for a new launch at about nine minutes before, or, uh, seven minutes before the end of the launch window, somewhere around there. And so we finally get the go to resume the count. And one thing that a few of us noticed and some people actually caught on video is that about two minutes before scheduled liftoff there was a giant plume that came out of the burn-off which there's a flame that sits off the side of the rocket that burns off excess um excess hydrogen that's used when fueling the rocket and so we're waiting and we see this big giant plume and about five seconds later we get a hold 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 and it turns out there was a uh there was a pressure issue that was caught, which thankfully they caught. Because if it had launched with a pressure issue, it could have been very bad. Although it turns out later, it was just instrumentation.
1: Yeah, exactly. And but you know, when you're dealing with something like this, you you, you want to be ultra careful. And make sure that you've got all your, you know, the the T's crossed and the I's dotted. In fact, um, we asked uh, Dr. Thomas Zabrukin, who is the uh, associate administrator for for science at NASA, a little uh, later about why we had to scrub here. And uh, he had a very, very interesting words, if you will, on on the scrub and, and what happened and what happened to him, too when he ran into somebody from uh, United Launch Alliance uh, uh, during a coffee break?
2: Oh, uh, we had two issues that we were working, and we ran out of time. So it's kind of, uh, the the first issue was a data connection issue between kind of the ground and the spacecraft, and the second one was a helium pressure sensor. Uh, Helium, we use helium to kind of equilibrate the pressure in the rocket to make sure that everything works exactly like it should. And so the helium pressure is supposed to dip when you uh, when you fuel it just at that moment in time at one minute fifty or so it's supposed to dip, but it dipped a little bit more than it should have, and and basically what happens when when it dips, you know, it went it hit a red limit and it it we just didn't have time to bring it back, and so what the team does is exactly the right thing. Basically says stop. I mean I, I'm 100 percent like I met a, a ULA guy in the at. A, I coffee this morning, you know, and, uh, and he basically apologized. I said, never, ever apologize for being safe with my spacecraft.
1: So, yeah, I thought that was a very, very interesting uh, final word that he had on that. That really is, is the ultimate story there. We could have probably gone, but we just ran out of time to psych the problem out. And they, you know, United Launch Alliance did the right thing and saying, OK, let's step back here, figure out really, really what we're looking at and, and if, if we're not happy with what we're seeing let's just kind of call it quits for the day and and try to psych this out and understand it fully so you mean know, we can we can go ahead and launch another day and you know, it's better to be, be on the ground and wishing you were aloft than aloft and wishing you hadn't launched to begin with so you know they, they were they were basically taking this on the side of caution so i thought it was a probably a pretty good idea to go ahead and do that given the fact that they really didn't understand what 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 they were up against yet but then sunday came along and and uh things were a little different sunday i mean sunday i don't know if sawyer if, what your thoughts were but i thought sunday went smooth as glass
0: yeah and here's the thing after covering as many launches as i have this is a weird little quirk it's this one Instinct, and I've talked with a few other reporters about it. I know Gene, you mentioned it. It's just something that I've experienced. Even talking with Robin gall who was on the show uh, a few episodes back, he had the same exact gut instinct where you wake up or you go out to Kennedy and you just have this feeling in your gut of, eh, I don't think it's going to launch today, or I don't know if I'm ready for launch. And if you get that feeling. 99.9% of the time it's grubs. Whereas if you go in, you're like, I got a great feeling about tonight and you genuinely mean it. You're not just trying to psych yourself up. It goes 99% of the time. And <laughs> I had that exact feeling of the first time of, I don't know, part of it was just exhaustion, but this one I'm like, I don't care how tired I am. I am pumped. I am ready. I am excited. And sure enough, it had a whole different feel in the countdown. It, it may have just been the random pop music they were playing while we were waiting for launch. <laughs>
1: Yeah, I I actually found that to be slightly annoying. Um you know, here I was, I was trying to mentally get into the game and all that and they were they were playing some some I I forget what, what the devil they were playing over, over the loudspeakers, but
0: it was very interesting. I'm trying to look. I know uh, a bunch of us that were there were tweeting out a playlist at that point of just, <laughs> "Oh, here's the awkward music that was being played." Yeah. Yeah.
1: You know, you're right, Sawyer. I just had to after that first hold uh on Saturday on Saturday night um it just had that weird feeling that okay what else is going to bite us in you know in the in the hind quarters this evening and then it just had a had a really bad feeling but sunday no pun intended um since we were launching toward the sun uh it really had a had a go feeling about it and it, it really did i mean i you know i i got out of um i got out of, out of the hotel room thinking you know i think we're going to have a good night tonight and uh, And lo and behold, that Delta Four uh, did not uh, did not disappoint I, I I will say too Sawyer the the previous day we got out there um, and we got fairly close to that beast and it was probably the first time I had ever been that close to a Delta four and I don't know if anybody had, had if anybody wants to they can go through my uh, my Twitter feed and probably Sawyer you've posted some some pictures on yours. Um, where, I mean, we're, even those photographs cannot really put into words how just massive this beast really, really is. I mean, the Delta Four heavy is just a is just a huge launch vehicle. And it, it is just an impressive, you, know, impressive thing to stand next to. And, and Sawyer, we really got fairly close.
0: Oh, yeah, and there will be pictures in the show notes as well. It's that uh, That's closer than any of us have gotten. I was talking with a few of the veteran reporters who have covered a bunch of these, and even they're like, we never get this close, because for EFT1, we had a, a line that we basically couldn't cross, and that's how it started, and then they're like, oh, we're going to move up. We're like, wait, what? We moved a little bit closer, and then we kept going closer, and the next thing you know, we're literally standing in the shadow of one of the side Common Core boosters, and... The next thing you know after that, we're literally driving alongside it. I have a photo that I took from driving inside my car of looking up at the rocket from the flame trench. That's how close they let us get. And then we went around to the other side in another rare change of pace so we could actually see the Parker Solar Probe logo and all the stickers and everything on the side of the rocket. Very unusual, very rare. And yet when I was talking to the the people about it from ULA, their exact words to me were, why not? It's not fueled. But here we are just alongside this thing. And they're going, yeah, there's nothing dangerous about it. Why not? And all of us are going, okay, this this is awesome. So, I mean, that was really cool. And we'll talk more about that in a minute. But at this point, I think we've talked about leading up to it. We talked about the rocket itself. The one thing we haven't done is the launch. And Gene, I, I don't know, but there was just this feeling, this aura, this weird quietness but excitement of leading up to that 60 seconds before launch this time.
1: Yeah, there really was. Uh, I mean, this was not exactly my first rodeo either, but still, um, the last time I had seen a Delta IV uh, heavy take to the sky was, as you had mentioned, Sawyer, back uh, back during uh, the Exploration Flight Test 1 for Orion, and, and this, this mission... Was equally critical, but it was also at night. And when when those those RS sixty eight engines ignited, right below uh, the uh, the booster, and it just it's always breathtaking to sit there and and just just stay quiet and just you know not only do do us the way I look at it is do a Scott Carpenter. Not only just see it, but feel what's what's happening around you and and really, really take it all all in. Uh, I mean, it, it, if you don't if you're not thinking something, you know, you're just not human. Um, I mean, this this was just an incredible it was just an incredible it was incredible just to be there.
0: I, it's we were talking about this right before launch. A few of us. I don't know if you were part of this conversation, Gene, but of finding the balance of us professionals, too, of. How much of that do you spend behind the lens and how much do you spend away from the lens? And it's you do both. You take photos and then you look up from the camera and it's literally like you're bobbing your head up and down of behind the camera above it just to get that dual feel. You get the photos, but then you get the experience.
1: Yeah, Sawyer. I mean, I, I was I was kind of lucky in that I was I was not encumbered. We had um, you were taking the photographs basically for talking space uh, at the. Uh, uh, at the causeway, uh, we had, uh, somebody else, uh, uh, that was helping us out, uh, young lady, lady Pranvera Hasani. she was up on the, uh, on the vehicle assembly building, uh, with my DSLR, uh, recording the launch, and which we will post up on our website later, um, for us, uh, she grabbed some really good, uh, could video from from her vantage point at the vehicle assembly building. So for the first time, the only thing I had with me was my, you know, <laughs> was was my point and shoot phone, which, you know, I felt kind of compelled to go ahead and post something up on on, on the social media feeds uh, about this. And of course people, you know, went nuts and shared it, but it really wasn't the best photography in the world. And I just had to just sit there and just take this in and try to go ahead and process what I was looking at. And Sawyer, so we're still about a week out from this thing, and I still am grappling with, with, what, I, with what I saw. Uh, I mean, in, in an instant, uh, night became day. And, and this large launch vehicle uh, just went ahead and majestically took off with its its precious payload uh, to a rendezvous with, with, the nearest, with our nearest star, the sun.
0: And you know what? I think at this point, let's just, let's pause for a moment and just enjoy. So this is the part where I always like to tell everyone, it's the time where if you have your headphones on, put them on, crank them up to max. If you're in the car, crank your car speakers all the way up for the next two and a half minutes. Enjoy what it sounds like to hear a Delta IV heavy take off to the sun. Now one thing you may notice and normally at this point since I edit these I cut off the audio right here but those first two minutes it kept going so you will actually hear underneath the rest of us talking as long as we kept hearing the rocket rumble so that little rumble you're hearing is still the rocket minutes after liftoff we heard it for what a good six minutes or so?
1: Yeah it was about it was a good six minutes Sawyer it's the first time that I've that experience where the launch vehicle was still rumbling and rumbling in fact I'd, I made that comment out there on on, on social media it basically said we heard this bird you know reach for the sky for about a good six minutes which to me was unprecedented I don't know whether whether or not it was just the way the wind was blowing or or, or just the way you know the atmosphere was that night it just I mean, it, it basically said, Hey, I'm going somewhere and I'm gonna let let the entire area know about it. And it, it that, that bird bird just unfurled its wings and and kept flying and, and let the whole world know that that it was delivering the Parker solar probe to the sun.
0: Oh yeah, and again it it's basically a skyscraper taking off. It the height of that is about a twenty four story building. And that's a skyscraper literally taking off in front of your eyes. And the last one that you and I saw, the Delta IV Heavy, was EFT-1, and that was at dawn. So there was light. You could see a lot more. This one, where it's just lighting up the entire sky, and then underneath this kind of like cloud of light that looks like it's almost pushing it up, is a skyscraper that just is lit from the glow of its own engines. And those three engines, boy, are they powerful and bright and Again, last time I don't even remember from EFT one hearing it that long, but sure enough, yeah, six straight minutes of just launch sound is unreal.
1: Yeah, I mean the 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 other thing thing too uh, with that since it since it was a night launch, night launches are always spectacular. But Sawyer, you I mean you ran that the, the video that that we got from the, the vehicle assembly building. I believe that was also used on one of the the, the local affiliate that you your your day job is for. And and I think that too gives you a pretty good idea of what what uh, what that that evening was, or should I say, that early morning was like. Uh, it, it was it was just it it was just a, an incredible experience, and that's why again, if if uh, the folks that are listening to us here, if you have not experienced something like this, I really do urge you to do it. Uh, and it, it just kind of invokes some some rather interesting thoughts you know that, that we we human beings are capable of you know of so much you know great things and, uh, and just knowing what the payload is on that vehicle and what it's going to be doing for us that that's and that's another thing we're going to be getting ready to, to gearing up to talk about
0: Exactly, it's it's such an amazing thing, and uh, the Delta IV Heavy especially. There's not that many of them, but when they go, they are they make their presence known. And uh, so that mission went off, and it was about a 43 minute climb to orbit. Um, oh, it was supposed to be 43 minutes, but it took us a little longer than that to find out how it was doing. So we all got back to the press site. I got back a little bit before, and we're watching the mission continue. At this point, we're already approaching a third stage, which this mission was unique in that normally the Delta IV Heavy has a main stage and an upper stage. This one added a third stage to give a little boost to the Parker Solar Probe to get it on its way. And that third stage separated, it fired, and at 43 minutes after, we were supposed to hear that the Parker Solar Probe was successfully on its way to the sun. And we heard nothing other than telemetry dropout.
1: From what I have I heard, uh, that, that that was kind of to be to be expected, to just rewind this a little bit too, uh, Sawyer, you and I, uh, during that uh, Friday, while we were at, uh, at the launch pad, at uh, Launch Complex 37, we had a chance to, to talk to somebody uh, about that third stage or that third kick motor, which, by the way, is not the first time they've ever used it. Uh, the, uh, the kick motor is built by... Uh, Northrop Grumman Innovation Systems, formerly Orbital ATK. And we talked with a uh, one of the, the project managers for that particular engine, uh, Katie, Katie Nieves. I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing your name, Katie. I apologize. And again, she is the small project manager. I mean, she's the project manager for the Small Space Launch program at uh, Northrop Grumman Innovation Systems, and she kind of explained what this engine is all about, and it's not the first time that this engine's ever been used. It was actually used, uh, believe it or not, on the Minotaur. And, and she explains what that engine really, really does, and, and so on, so why don't we just listen to, to Katie here.
3: The Star 48 uh, BB um, series, the V means that it's a, it's a vectorable, steerable. Um, it's previously flown on our LADEE and uh, TacSat 4 um, rockets, um, or missions aboard the Minotaur 4 and 5 rockets Um, we have so uh, in terms of numbers and the performance of the vehicle it provides 15,000 pounds of thrust uh, in terms of speed Um, at separation the rocket is going approximately uh, 28,000 miles uh, per hour at the end of the burn um, of our uh, motor burn, it's now going 35,000 miles per hour, um, and so it's it's a it is a ki- definitely a kick stage <laughs> uh, to put the to put the rocket on a trajectory going towards the cylinder.
1: Now you mentioned two smaller vehicles, the Minotaur and and because uh, I know I remember the Laddie launch. I Actually saw it from, uh, from I there. <laughs> yeah from yeah. So awesome. was so were we. It was fantastic. Uh, Were there any modifications that, you know, this is a much larger launch vehicle. Uh, were there any modifications to that to that engine at all that were required to fit the Delta IV Heavy as opposed to say like a Minotaur?
3: The engine itself, no, no modifications were required. It was uh, more in the secondary structures and the the, uh, the structures that connect uh, the the Star Forty Eight and, and avionics to the second stage of the Delta. That that adapter structure is. Unique
1: what are going to be thought? What your thoughts when that thing? Find that monster finally lights out behind us and what were you thinking about your role and the folks that helped you get here and Folks that are going to give this uh, this very special mission its final push to its destination.
3: Uh, excellent question. I think it's going to be a healthy dose of excitement and a healthy dose of, of relief to see a conclusion for a project that my team has been working on for three years. Wow.
1: How, and again, there were absolutely no modifications to this thing that were really, really required at all.
3: The the, the motor itself, right. no. But there are because we are going to the sun. There's certain elements. Uh, to the avionics that needed to be uh, addressed. It, the trajectory is going through or very close to the Van Allen belt. Uh, which is high radiation or uh, high energy protons. Uh, so the the avionics needed to be uh, able to withstand that type of environment. Uh, so there we do have rad tolerant um, avionics on that stage, and that that in and of itself is new, new to Northrop.
1: That's what I was sort of sort of hoping to hear and and, and under, trying to understand if there were any modifications at all to the engine like that, or, or to any of the support mechanisms to it that were required for. That. We do,
3: we do. We strive very hard in the rocket business in general to stay with heritage hardware. Right. Um, but Northrop Grumman has um, the unique ability to customize our missions based on what the customer needs. And in this case, the trajectory really defines what our requirements were. And, and probably the most challenging uh, was the was the uh, to handle the radiation. The, the okay.
1: I'm going to give you the last last word here. Um, anything else you want to add? And about uh, about your role in the flight, or you know anything with your your, your, your thoughts possibly back home of uh, the folks that really really helped get you here and all that.
3: I, I can speak for the whole team. They are extremely dedicated, extremely excited. Um, and uh, and just very enthusiastic to uh, to play a part in this um, this mission to the sun.
1: Go Parker Solar Probe. I don't want to go ahead and and use that overworked cliche, but it does take a village to build a rocket and build a a successful mission. And uh, to to go ahead now and fast forward, uh, there was a lot of, there was some panic, Sawyer, if you recall, during the, uh, uh, when we didn't hear anything. And there was a lot of grim faces on on NASA television. We were looking at that. Our hearts were in our mouth a little bit as well. But uh, lo and behold, uh, we heard from the spacecraft and she told us that she was fine. And uh, and the mission proceeded onward. So it was just a, a momentary... Momentary minute moment of drama for us.
0: Yes, we had a bunch of people murmuring, "This is not good. This does not seem good." And then, sure enough, once they got the data back, eruption of applause.
1: Yeah, exactly. I know. I I, I know. I was one of the ones that that was applauding rather rather loudly on that. Um, in fact, um, we, we asked uh, Doctor Zabukin uh, about what had occurred uh, in that, and uh, well, he kind of told us what the loss of telemetry was all about. So um, here are his, uh, his post-launch comments and um, also uh, his insights into uh, the loss of, uh, the temporary loss of telemetry. But everything went really
2: well. I think the only kind of hiccup that we, uh, that we saw uh, was kind of when we did the third stage, we lost telemetry for a short, but, you know, that happens from time to time, Everything uh, everything is fine. Everything was exactly like we told you before it would be, you know, the, the you know, the, the first stage, the, you know, the, the second, then the float, you know, everything. I mean, it really was textbook until the very end where we had this little, uh, that little hiccup. It came back right away mm-hmm. and uh, we have a power positive spacecraft. So that's where we want to be.
1: So I don't want to say it was expected, but they they kind of thought that this might happen and, you know, due to the position of the spacecraft and and so on. But we picked it up. And uh, so, as you said, there was a huge sigh of relief in that room. And uh, uh, I know me personally, I was like, OK, <laughs> we still have a bird and she's still she's still flying, talking to us.
0: And not just that, but flying where she's supposed to be on her way.
1: Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And and that was really the the the, the critical thing that the the Delta IV delivered that that spacecraft and and she is is on her way to her first uh, port of call even as we
0: speak right now the planet Venus. Yeah, exactly. This uh, mission is going to be using Venus not as a gravity assist to speed up, as is typical lately, but as a gravity assist to slow itself down to help get it in to go closer and closer to the sun. So it's going to pass by Venus, I believe they said about three times per year for the next seven years or so until it finally gets to its closest point of the sun, that four million mile mark.
1: Yeah, and um, to, to, give you, to give folks a, a, an idea on how big this thing is, it's, it's about the size really of a Volkswagen Beetle. Uh, the solar arrays are about, when they're fully extended, are about 3.7 feet or about uh, 1.12 meters long. Um, And by the way, if you really want to know how many watts this thing generates, I believe it's in the neighborhood. I just want to, let me just see if I can find it here. 388 watts of power, depending on, on the configuration of the spacecraft. And if you really want an analog, go into your kitchen. Take a look at the blender that's sitting on the counter there. That amount of power, 388 watts, is required to run the blender. That's how much power is required to run the Parker Solar Probe. So I just thought I'd go ahead and throw that particular uh, piece of information out there.
0: That's pretty cool. And the other thing to note is it's not that heavy either. I mean, in terms of uh, weight, I believe it came out to about 1,400 pounds or about 550 kilos. Keeping in mind that the Delta IV Heavy can lift about 10 times that amount. It can lift about 14,000 pounds, but it needed that extra thrust to get into that escape trajectory and go into heliocentric orbit, or orbiting around the sun, basically, and to send it on its way to Venus.
1: Yeah, exactly, Sawyer. So, uh, you know, that was the big question there, too. You know, couldn't couldn't we use a smaller space—you know, couldn't we use a smaller booster— not really not for this particular mission could we use something like falcon heavy no because you still need the cryogenics that delta 4 heavy was able to go ahead and give and give you with that as well as as an advantage for the uh, for the mission so the delta 4 heavy was was the the best tool in the swiss army knife that the united states has right now
0: this was an amazing mission and the other thing was just the excitement surrounding it. And normally, you know, we tend to cover, if we cover a launch, some science-related missions. So a lot of the commercial resupply missions, the space station, we did OSIRIS-REx, things like that. As cool as those were, this one, at first, it didn't seem to have that air of excitement around it. NASA didn't seem to promote it as much, in my opinion. There was a lot of events that they could have held but didn't. But yet, the second that we started talking to those scientists... All that went out the window, and I realized, my goodness, this is probably one of the most exciting scientific missions we've ever covered. And I think those scientists just talking about it, this wasn't a NASA-hyped mission. This was a scientist-hyped mission, and talking to them gave that feeling, didn't it?
1: Oh, Sawyer, yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, it's what brought me down to the Cape. Uh, I usually let you have all the fun since you're, you're in Florida as it is. Uh, on these things and uh, because that's number one number two is is because of your your training uh you do a far more effective job than i ever could in in a lot of ways so i kind of let you have have, had the fun but um but this one i kind of needed i felt i felt compelled to come out of uh out of the shell a little bit here from uh, from New Jersey, and to go down there to to cover this one because I think thought this this mission is is just probably one of the most compelling uh, science missions that we've launched in a, in quite a long time, and I'm I'm not saying that it's better than uh, going off and and bringing a, a sample back from an asteroid. Trust me, but uh, there was just so much. When, when we started talking about th- this, there was just so many people that were really, really excited about it. And as I tur- as things turned out, for every story, there's there just seems to be a Jersey angle. And we're going to get to that in, in a little bit. So I'm not going to spoil it for you.
0: Exactly. But the one thing, and I, I do just want to bring this up. I don't want to bring the mood down at all. But one thing it seemed like is when we got the release of media events, there were none. It was, we have a press conference in the building next door, not even the typical auditorium, and go out to the rocket and launch. Normally, they have some special tour, some special event, things like that. Turns out there was one event, uh, and that was, yeah. <laughs> that was a meeting. Uh, that was a chance to go into uh, the old shuttle processing facility, too, where Boeing currently is building their CST-100, or the Starliner. Uh, and they had that, as well as a chance to meet all the new crew members, because since we've been gone, they announced the first astronauts that will be flying for commercial crew vehicles. Um, we had reached out to Boeing to participate in this. We were not included in the original email thread offering the chance to go out to the event. Uh, when I did finally reach out to them, once I had heard about it uh, through someone else who was also on that email thread that I should have been a part of... Um, we were told it was too late due to security clearance including speaking to them on the day of. So we always like to point out when people do well and when people don't. Um and I have to say in this one, Boeing not your best.
1: Yeah, they kind of dropped the ball at this one. I'll 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 be honest with you Sawyer because usually we go out there and you know the last time I was down there was oh, good lord, it was for uh, for OA4. And Boeing and you know, launch alliance had a grand uh, event for us. We they went ahead. They toured the we toured the uh, OPF two, which was slowly but surely becoming a, uh, a a workshop for the fabrication of the CST one hundred Starliner. We visited uh, Launch Complex forty one, where uh, the uh, you know where it was being transformed to support. Uh, crew launches, and we had a very, very good presentation by United Launch Alliance and by Boeing to uh, understand what changes were going on on the pad, what changes they were they were putting in to support, uh, you know, piloted launches at that point, and it, it was quite an education, and I believe we did mention it when we went ahead to cover OA-4, uh, but this one... Yeah, it, it's it's like night and day. I mean, I I know if if you reach out to say the folks working on the uh, the SLS, it's a different story.
0: Case in point, see our episode from Houston where we did a two part special all on the stuff that they gave us access to.
1: Yeah, exactly. And or if we we talk about you know SLS or Orion, uh, the folks are 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 over there ready to talk to us. Sawyer, you had carte blanche pretty much over at. Uh, at the Johnson Space Flight Center, uh, you and 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 Robin had uh, you know literally run of the place, and uh, you know Brandy Dean basically let you let you guys have at it and 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 do what you needed to do. But again, that was NASA. But the, you talk to the the uh, Space Launch System side of the house for, for for Boeing, and and they are extraordinarily accommodating. You talk. But as soon as you, you shift the gear and you go to uh, the Starliner side of the house, things get a little murky.
0: And I do want to point something out here is that the reason they said was because security clearance and that I completely understand. It was just they did not give nearly enough time to put in and respond to say, hey, if you want access, let us know so we can put your name on the list. It was about 12 hours total time when they sent out the email to when the deadline was. And, of course, it took a little longer than 12 hours for the word to get to me since I wasn't on the original email thread. In pure defense here of their competitor, who's also working on commercial crew SpaceX... We received an email from them a week and a half before their scheduled event with their commercial crew vehicle and their commercial crew to come out and cover it. We did not due to travel arrangements because it was the day after the Parker Solar Probe launch, but I do want to give them credit. They gave plenty of notice and plenty of availability for theirs, whereas uh, we did not get the same with Boeing, even though we were literally in their backyard and already on base
1: yeah Sawyer I you know I, I, that's that, that was the other thing I was going to point out thank you for doing so because we you know again had we had the resources to go ahead and and get over to Hawthorne I, I mean we, we would have done it and uh I, I I congratulate SpaceX for the you know t- for the foresight and I congratulate them for at least giving us that attention and giving us that opportunity um and and you know, so kudos to them. I think too. I kind of felt this was sort of sort of orchestrated that they wanted just certain certain media there, and and that was that was pretty much the bottom line of of what they wanted to do here uh, with uh, with this particular event. I think a lot of it. I think one of them was. Uh, you know, I, I know Bill Hardwood from CBS News. As far as the national folk, they he was there. A lot of the uh, Central Florida news affiliates they were invited, um, and uh, there were just a, a few of uh, a few of us. Other other kind of you know other media. I know uh, NASA Space Flight was in, was invited. Um, space.com was there. But you know we weren't, and uh, and you know so our. You know, our, our apologies to to our listeners as far as that is concerned but uh uh again we will uh you know i as, as sawyer you put it um we will go ahead and we'll reference uh, the the show that we did on uh on oi4 and we'll just we'll just <laughs> we'll, the only thing i can say is we'll just march on and uh and and continue
0: and boeing if you'd like feel free to reach out Mailbag at TalkingspaceOnline.com. My personal one is Sawyer at TalkingspaceOnline.com. We'd be happy to bring this to our audience and uh, make something out of it.
1: Yep. And uh, again, I'll, I'll throw mine in there for uh, for giggles. Uh, mine is uh, G. McCulka, M-I-K-U-L-K-A, at Talking Space Online. And again, I'd, I'd love to talk to you folks and, and really get the story out.
0: We'd love to have a representative on and even possibly some of the crew members, whatever, because they had access to the crew members as well. Whatever you're willing to give, we're willing to take. And the same goes for all the commercial crew companies. Yep, exactly. I just felt that uh, we needed to bring that up to be fair to everyone as to all of the coverage that was going on and why it wasn't included in ours. But again, this one was all about the scientists. And I think this is going to be a two part episode and the perfect way to end part one of this episode has to be with the man, the myth, the legend, the new head of science at NASA, former head of planetary science, Jim Green. Now we've heard from him on this show before in snippets when he has spoken at the Northeast Astronomy Forum, but Gene, you and I have never gotten fifteen minutes to sit down with him with a recorder and just talk. And we finally got that opportunity.
1: Sawyer, so that gentleman is—he has got a third wheel that if, if that if you you know how to hit it. He just goes and it, it just was, you know, we walked in and he was actually in the middle of a thought when when we walked in and we were like, OK,
0: <laughs> I mean, we yeah. we were- he was discussing uh, coronal mass ejections and the past massive one back in the 1800s where aurora could be seen all the way down to the equator right and that's what he was talking about when we came in from his previous interview and we we're just like oh what, what's this about and he just went on and Gina, i only think it's fair that we just play this in its entirety because uh, you and i were talking before recording that we think this may be one of the greatest interviews we've ever done on this show in like a short 15 minute time span on scene to get this much out of him is I think we just have to play it.
1: Yeah, I agree with you, Sawyer. And um, before we go ahead and play, I want to thank uh, uh, Dr. Jim Green, NASA's uh, chief sci- new chief scientist, for his time on this one, because it it was probably one of the more engaging interviews that I've ever participated in in the nine years that I have been doing this. And he he was just absolutely in- incredible. And I'm, I'm just going to go ahead, Sawyer. Why don't you just... You know, hit the button and roll it up, and let uh, let our listeners just sit back and enjoy this because this this was an this was just an amazing
0: piece. Exactly. So again, we join him mid conversation because we just asked you, "What are you talking about?" He began talking, and that's when we realized, let's get the recorder rolling, <laughs> and uh, we'll begin in the middle of that conversation, and we'll catch you on the end of it.
4: It's going to see coronal mass ejections. It's going to see massive flares. Okay, mm-hmm. and so it's going to find out some things that. We only theorize right now that we really can't see because we're not making the measurements right in the spot. But Parker Solar Probe will do that. Wow. (laughs) All right. Uh. And those things, those coronal mass ejections, which grab a huge amount of the upper atmosphere of the sun and blow that off and move towards the Earth, okay, when it hits the Earth's magnetosphere, the magnetosphere has a tremendous time staying intact. In fact, what it does is it starts reconnecting and reconfiguring all over the place and produces aurora. So every time we have a coronal mass ejection, we have an aurora. Now, I don't know if you've seen an aurora, but they can be really spectacular. So the one I was just talking about was, the, was an enormous aurora that happened in 1859. It was so fantastic that it went through the United States, through Mexico, and into Panama. Okay? Now, that's unbelievable. Everyone in the United States could see it if it was clear. It was unbelievable. Wow. You didn't have to go to Alaska to see an aurora. (laughs) (laughs) I'm guessing we're not expecting any of those anytime soon, though. Or are we? um, There is a chance... You know, uh, these are these are very rare, but they but we have gone back in history and we see that every 150 or so years they occur.
0: Wow, that I guess that time's coming up, huh? That time is coming up. Be any day now.
4: (laughs) So what happened in 2013 is a massive coronal uh, mass ejection happened that was comparable to the one in 1859, but we were on the other side of the sun at the time. So it missed
0: us, okay? Any chance that Parker could help us predict this so that its findings might help us better understand? Yeah, that's a really good question. So uh, it, it does indeed help us
4: understand the phenomena and therefore allow us to use that data and say, okay, we now know what Parker is observing. That's what it's like in these other places. And now we can do a better job of prediction. So its data will feed into the prediction, but I don't think it's going gonna, it's gonna to make uh, uh, predictions on its own. But the data will be tremendously unique and provide us an enormous opportunity to get a better handle on solar storms. And how's that data can compare to something from like SOHO or SDO? How would that compare? Well, SOHO and SDO look at the sun. Okay, and they look at it at different wavelengths and in different ways. Parker's going to be there, okay? And so it's going to be making measurements. This is what it's like. The magnetic field strength is enormous. The particles that are being accelerated are being done right here, okay? And so with its imager, it's going to image the area and then fly through it, okay? And then that data was going to be put in context with all the SOHO and and SDO and stereo data. And they'll say, okay, right here, this is what's going on. Well, this over here looks like this area. That must have the same phenomena happening here. So that's how it goes. It gives us the context. Uh, 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 You know, I was the head of planetary Mm -hmm. and there's something similar. The analogy that I would give is it's like curiosity sitting on the surface of Mars giving the context, looking at the mineralogy, and that mineralogy, when we look at orbit and we see the reflected light from the surface, and we say, okay, that's hematite. Then anywhere on Mars that we see that same reflected spectrum, it's hematite. So Curiosity provides what what we call ground truth. Ground truth. That's what Parker Solar Probe's going to do.
0: Wow, that actually makes a lot of sense now. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, with Parker Solar Probe, then, how does this fit into NASA's overall? Now that you've got uh, your promotion, which congratulations. Oh, well, thank you very much. Uh, how does this fit into NASA's overall science goals right now? Well, indeed,
4: you know, the more we uncover about the sun, the better. All right. We believe space weather uh, uh, is very important to understand. Um, We've been pretty naive about space weather for a long time, but, but the facts are coming together pretty pretty good that uh, space weather can knock out our satellites. Um, huge aurora, could with huge currents that occur in the ionosphere, can knock out our electronical, uh, electronic system, can uh, burn up uh, 125 kilovolt transformers in our electrical grid, just like they did in Canada in 1989. Okay, now that means we need to understand what happens in this space weather because it has direct effect on us here on Earth. I mean, uh, in a major way. Uh, let me give you an example. Uh, because now we know that the that that our observation of the sun over the last forty years, the sun actually in space weather has been pretty quiet, but in its past. We know it's been absolutely, really active. And there's been certain times, although rare, that it's just been tremendous activity. That today, if those things occurred, we'd probably be burning up most of the transformers in our electrical grid. Okay? Now, is that a bad thing? Okay. And it turns out, it's a horrible thing. And the reason why is there's about 300, 125 kilovolt transformers in our electrical grids. And if we burn up a significant number of them, replacing them is gonna be difficult because we only make one or two a month. And even then, that requires electricity to do that, okay? And so a lot of the world, you know, when you think about it, without electricity if it was out and we're waiting for a 125 kilovolt transformer to be uh, installed, we're going to be shooting squirrels and chopping wood out the back to survive. So we will go back in time and live like the early 1800s, okay? Now, that that's livable, all right? You know, that we have proof of that. <laughs> but in reality, we're not prepared to, to be camping all our, you know, for the next Months or many months. I mean, it's just not you know it, that's just not going to be fun anymore. <laughs> yeah, try and give
0: someone make someone go five minutes without internet, let alone five months.
4: <laughs> yeah, right. Okay, no phones, no microwaves. I don't know what my wife would do without a microwave. But um, uh, you can't pump gas either. Okay, I mean it's 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 a real problem. So the study of the sun is is fundamental. To, to creating the knowledge we need to make predictions and then from those predictions be able to respond to allow our technological society to continue the way it is that's that's just phenomenal to me that we're making these this kind of progress
0: that is absolutely amazing now gene i know you're bringing this up is that how how it brings up, not just how this fits into NASA's current science goal, but obviously with the decadal survey, how, does, how is Parker Solar Probe fitting in with that? Well, you know,
4: uh, that, that's a really good question because we have wanted to do this for 60 years. <laughs> I mean, this has been talked about for a long time, you know, and it's, and, it, and it's been in decadals before. But, you know, the concept is, well, why haven't you done it? Well, to go where this thing is gonna go and to be able to get into an area where the temperature is going to be 2,500 degrees Fahrenheit and be able to survive, let alone take measurements, we, ha- we, we just were not there. You know, some new technologies had to be made and had to be perfected. And we now have, have what we need. It's all together to be able to pull this off. So you see the poster with the sunshade on it, okay? That's always gonna point to the sun. Okay, it's about seven foot in diameter. It's painted white. It's about four, maybe five inches thick of carbon-carbon material, special material that's necessary to be able to withstand these kind of temperatures. And on the other side of it, those, those instruments will be almost, you know, 70 to 80 degrees Fahrenheit. It'll almost be like room temperature, okay? That's unbelievable. <laughs>
1: that's a wonderful follow-up to uh, the question I had. Uh, as far as the sunshield and the carbon-carbon material, mm-hmm. I was kind of wondering: is it very similar to the bird that's behind you, with the shuttle leading edge uh, and the uh, the nose there? because ah. I know ah. I know they, the shuttle they had sim- tiles. Right, the shuttle tiles. They had the th- reinforced carbon, carbon, carbon. Is 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 the material that that's being used on Parker is similar to that, or? Is it more advanced? And if so, are there other missions that are kind of looking at this and going, hey, you've solved the problem. You may have solved the problem for us.
4: Yeah, that's a really good question. So so these are two different technologies, okay? So what makes the shuttle tile work is how it is constructed. You know, uh, when you look at Apollo or Mercury capsules, you had, you had a surface that was made underneath that, that, that was what we call ablative. It was designed to burn off, okay? And, and the concept is it takes a lot of heat to burn it off. And so if you make it thick enough, so that as you burn it off all the way down, you could actually make it to the ground before you burn through, okay? That was the idea. That was really heavy, really heavy. So the next technology leap was the tile. Now what's going on with the tile is that they have uh, uh, fibers that can withstand enormous temperature so their composition I'm not quite sure but how it was constructed is they were laid on in different directions. Okay. Now if you grab a sheet of paper that's actually how paper is made with fibers that are put together. Okay. Now the fibers uh, with spaces in between them were really important because As the heat came in, then it was squirt out and it wasn't designed to be burnt up and ablative. It was designed to grab the heat and move it. Okay. This particular uh, technology isn't going to be burnt off either, but it's designed to withstand that enormous heat. Okay. Now. Uh, it's, uh, the first layer of protection is the white paint, a special white paint. And, of course, uh, uh, the difference between white and black is uh, white reflects the whole uh, visible spectrum, and black absorbs the whole visible spectrum. Okay, And so you want to reflect as much light away as you possibly can. And then that allows you to tackle the next level. The next level is heat. And, it, and, and and although it's enormous we also have to think about the fact that it's not like our atmosphere this atmosphere that we're going to is really thin but it's really hot so that means when you grab uh, when you grab a little area of atmosphere here we have an enormous number of particles and they're neutral particles that are sitting in my hands okay but when i go to the sun and grab an area like that and look at it the density is very low, but the particles are really moving, and that's what gives heat. Is is speed, all right? And so um, that's why it's different from from that perspective. It's just it's just uh, uh, one of the things that we do that NASA does well, and that is understand an area you're going into and then design appropriately. Okay, so um, Messenger had. a a a shield on it a a nice little shield that wasn't like that at all it was a it was almost a cloth-like uh system but you know mercury is so much further away and and it it wasn't receiving anywhere in the amount of heat uh and then new horizons is you using not solar power like parker is and like messenger did at mercury it's using radioisotope power because it's going to Pluto, where, where when you look back and look at the sun, it's almost indistinguishable from the other points of light that you see. <laughs> okay, But you do get the most of the heat from it because it's closer to you. So you have to bring your power with you. So that means every spacecraft we do is different. And that's what makes this field so exciting.
1: Is the human spaceflight side kind of looking at possibly incorporating this technology?
4: Good question. Uh, so uh, when we land on Mars, um, we'll be doing more like what the Apollo did, okay? Um, uh, the shield won't need to be as thick, uh, we'll know how to handle it, that's all because the atmosphere isn't uh, as, uh, as thick as our atmosphere. So that technology is well in hand. So we don't have to invent anything. We don't have to, uh, you know, figure out, well, we need to adopt this for that. Uh, so, so, you know, check that off our list. That we can do. And then, of course, when, uh, you know, now that, now that we have opportunities to do a lot more of testing and going to Mars in the lunar area, the, the moon has no atmosphere, and it, it's just so much easier to land. And so that's, that's a, you know, get down on the ground and, and do some things, do some tests, uh, you know, uh, it, it, as a precursor to going to Mars. Wow.
0: Yeah, that, I mean, this mission is just fantastic. So this is kind of a bit of an out there question, but now being basically the head of science here, if you could pick a mission that you said to the administration, I want this to be our next goal of a mission. Wow. What would you personally <laughs> choose? Okay, so... Um,
4: uh that that's a that's a really good question you know um uh, i was head of planetary science for about 12 years and 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 i'd give a lot of uh talks and um uh, uh, kids in the audience—they'd all get up and walk up, and their first question would be, "Is uh, what planet do you like the most?" And I, and I always would say, "I love all my children equally." <laughs> <laughs> so now that I'm the chief scientist, I'm going to have to say it that way, you know, because, and 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 it's really true in the sense that every mission we do has a special set of of, of circumstances that it's going into and it's making a special set of observations we've never made before. And it's doing it in a special type of way. And so that makes it extra special. It just, everything stacks up to being exciting for each and every one of the missions we do. That's great. Anything else you wanna add? I'm I'm looking forward to the launch. I mean, the Delta
0: Four Heavy ought to shake the ground tomorrow. <laughs> <laughs> that is the truth. Thank you, sir.
4: Sure. My pleasure.
0: The one thing I love is you could just tell his excitement, and he was taking these things that can be pretty complex and simplifying it, just, you know, things like the paint on the heat shield and just... All these little details that make this such a big mission. It's, oh, I, I get chills re-listening to it.
1: So one of the things that I talked to uh, some folks around here about uh, after talking with Jim Green is Jim Green's the kind of individual that could go ahead and make fungus sound intriguing. And he is one of the, <laughs> I, I'm serious. I mean, he is one of the th- these people that can take, as you said, can take the most complex mundane piece of science and get you so energized about it that you you just have to pick up a book or go to the internet or go somewhere and learn about it and if if you're not intrigued after hearing that piece about the Parker Solar Probe and its mission I I dare you mere mortals not to be he's just he's just got a rare gift and he's he's right where he needs to be
0: and it's one of those things where you and I had questions lined up of things we kind of wanted to ask him about, and he answered most of them before we even got to it. And, yeah. just, you know, some of these complex things he was able to take, like, you know, the fact that we had a picture of the space shuttle behind him talking about, you know, the the heat shield comparisons and everything. It's, it's great. And uh, a huge thank you again to Dr. Jim Green, and congratulations again, as we mentioned, on your promotion to the head of science at NASA.
1: When you talk to him, it's like, like, having a day off as far as interviewing is concerned. And he's, he's just an amazing individual. And, uh, I, again, I, I can't say enough, enough about him. So again, Dr. Green, if you're listening, thank you so much.
0: And I know he talked about in the interview, how all those missions are like his children. You can't pick a favorite, you can't pick where <laughs> he'd want to go next. And I think that's kind of the same way with ours. Admittedly, that one is pretty up there, but we've got so many more amazing interviews to share with you, but you're going to have to wait two more weeks for part two of this amazing series to come out and we hope you'll join us for that but thank you for joining us for part one gene mcculka
1: oh i'm i can't wait to start part
0: two here sawyer it's gonna be an amazing show oh boy this is uh it's gonna be a rough two weeks to get through but trust me it's gonna be worth the wait because we've got some more amazing interviews and a big big surprise interview as well um But we're going to save that and we hope you'll join us for the next one. But until then, as always, have a great day, night, evening, or whatever it may be where you are and go Parker Solar Pro.